Hey everyone, and welcome to the Uncorked Corner podcast, where we cover the full spread of food and beverage industry topics. My name is Bianca, PR and marketing professional by day and food and wine connoisseur by night. And my name is Nick, an accountant with a passion for barbecue, beer, and whiskey. Today we welcome Julia Cottrell. Julie is the craft winemaker at Great Oregon Wine Company in Dundee, Oregon. In today's episode, Julia tells us about her history growing up in the vineyards, how it's impacted her career, and what makes Oregon a special place for the community and wineries alike. All right, everybody, let's welcome Julia to the podcast. So hi everyone, today we are welcoming Julia Cottrell to the podcast from Great Oregon Wine Company. Julia, let's start by having you introduce yourself to the audience and by taking us through your background in winemaking. Hi, my name is Julia Cottrell. I have been the winemaker here at Great Oregon Wine Company for just a few short months. Um, Ransom Wine Company joined Great Oregon Wine Company and now I have the great privilege of making both portfolios. I actually uh, started my career in the wine industry at the age of six, uh, pulling leaves and doing other not too dangerous jobs in my family's small organic vineyard in the Eola Amity Hills. I was a terrible worker, but my dad really loved me. So he kept trying to find ways to motivate me, including um, if we found a bird nest, we would get a banana split, stuff like that. Um, And, you know, just when I thought maybe there was no future for me, in wine. I went off to college where I studied anthropology, um, which I joke sometimes is kind of the the backdoor degree to the wine industry as a really esoteric liberal arts degree. Um, And after college, I just couldn't stand the thought of being at a desk um, ever again. And so I thought, what can I do that will be really active, get my hands dirty? So I came back to work a harvest um, with Tad Seastead of Ransom Wine Company, and I was hooked. And I thought, well, I'll do this for a few years, and then maybe I'll go to graduate school. Uh, And then I did another vintage and another vintage. And pretty soon I realized that this really is kind of the best of both worlds. You know, you get your hands dirty, you have all kinds of lab science going on. And I've been with Ransom and now Great Oregon Wine Company ever since. So since 2007, I've been working in the winery and since 1991, I've been working in the vineyard. That's an incredible story. Love to hear that. It's so cool when people grow up, you know, kind of with the background and then don't realize till later that, you know, this is definitely what you want to do. So that's very cool. Um, with so many different wines, and it looks like there's quite a few different like wine lines under the Great Oregon umbrella. Do you know a little bit about the company's history to this point? Yeah, so this company, it's a pretty cool story in that it's a number of different companies that have kind of come together under the umbrella of the Great Oregon Wine Company. Uh, The Great Oregon Wine Company was originally housed in McMinnville and was um, the the winemaker, the director of winemaking here, Matt Chakovic, was the winemaker there. And then both this company and the Duck Pond Company were acquired by Integrated Beverage Group over the last few years, as well as Ransom. And so now we have a number of different brands, all with kind of a similar identity in terms of commitment to sustainability and at kind of different scales of production under this 
um, under this physical roof where I'm sitting right now in Dundee. Um, and so the Great Oregon label is, tends to be our smaller, more kind of handmade items. And then we have a lot of other items under Duck Pond and Rascal that go out into broader distribution and see a little bit more of the, of the world. Um, and it's been really exciting to work with so many different scales. You know, I'm in charge of the smaller lot items and another winemaker is in charge of the bigger stuff. But because we have so many different um, styles of winemaking happening in one facility, it's always really dynamic. Um, and there's always a lot of people to kick ideas around with and, um, and, and kind of have different, different things happening at the same time, different stages of production. One thing will just be finishing malolactic fermentation, another thing will be going to bottle, and, and um, yeah, that's what we're up to here. So how long have you personally actually been in charge of making the wines? Great Oregon Wine Company wines, I have only been in charge of since the spring. So I'm pretty new. So if I missed any answers, bear with me. Um, the ransom wines I've been making for quite a bit longer, um, but it's definitely been a, a season of, of great transition here. So I'm pretty, pretty fresh to the GOWC stuff. And uh, you're our first Oregon-based wine company. So can you give us a little explanation on how the region that you're in kind of affects the flavor profile of the wines? Absolutely. I think Oregon is a, a fairly small region compared to a, a lot of the other regions in terms of total tonnage, in terms of no, number of producers, but there really is a lot of dynamism. The Willamette Valley has, I think we're up to 11 sub-American viticultural areas, and each of them really does have their own signature. And at Great Oregon Wine Company, we have a fair bit of fruit that comes up to us from the Umpqua Valley, which is in Southern Oregon. It's a little warmer down there, but you still have really huge diurnal shifts between nighttime temperatures that are dropping down into the 50s during the growing season and daytime temperatures that might spike up into the 90s on a fairly regular basis. And so you, you get this real concentration and lushness and there's a real savoriness of, I, I call it the mountain character. You drive down through the coast range and you really see the influence, I would say, of the the kind of terroir of the area in, in the wines. And that's true here as well. In the Eel Amity Hills, where we source a fair amount of our fruit, you have brighter acidity, real concentration of flavor from the influence of a corridor of wind called Van Duzer. Um, and then in Dundee Hills, which is kind of a classic Oregon Appalachian, you see a little bit more red fruit and salinity and so really having the, the pieces of the puzzle from all the different AVAs um, is what defines our brand. We're not quite so focused on one AVA in particular. And I would say it's also what makes Oregon really special, that in this fairly small space, you have an incredible diversity of wines that I would say are really held together by concentrated acidity, um, really nice freshness, very food friendly. Neat. And I know the company was founded on an appreciation for the culture and community in Oregon. I've never been there myself. Can you explain a little bit about what that is and what makes Oregon different as a state? 
I am definitely a little biased because I am born and raised in Oregon and my family has actually been farming the same farm for over a hundred years. Um, so I'm very much, uh, very much of this place. But I think you don't have to be here for more than a couple of days to really understand that, especially within the wine industry, the culture is so special. Um, you know, right now we have you know, a piece of equipment that we've lent to a friend at a neighboring winery because they were having difficulty. And, and that's really the way it is. You know, there are um, jokes about other wine regions and how famously secretive people can be. And in Oregon, it's just really not that way. People really help each other out. I'll get text messages from other winemakers who purchase fruit from the same block saying, hey, I picked a little bit earlier than you did. And I thought you might like to know, you know, here's the lab analysis that I paid $100 for. I just wanted to share it with you so that you'd have a better sense of, you know, of how the fruit's doing. Um, and that sense of everyone really wanting to help each other succeed, I really think is what makes Oregon so special. And I think you can taste it in the wines. You can, you can taste that a rising tide kind of lifts all boats in that way, that people really are making incredibly good wine for being small and scrappy. And, and I think a big part of it is because there is so much cooperation and you always know that if your press breaks down, somebody else will press your grapes until the mechanic can get there. And I love that. I, I, I can't imagine working somewhere that didn't have that feeling because harvest is hard enough without, a, without worrying about not having your friends having your back. Yeah, I'm over in what many people know as the other Portland. I'm in Portland, Maine. Oh. So I think we have a very similar kind of culture here with the restaurant scene and the craft beer scene, mainly over here. Craft beer is huge, um, where you see tons and tons of collabs and restaurants. They do all kinds of beer weeks and everything where the restaurants will all support local breweries each day of the week. It's really, really centered on everyone kind of helping each other out to really make this cohesive sort of craft community that we have here. And that's just it. I think that what people are looking for, you know, very few people have a really strong sense of, you know, oh, I'm super committed to this one winery or this one skew from this one winery. Usually what people want when they're thinking about wine is to think about the sense of place. And I think it really does help everyone and it helps the wines in general. If when people think of Oregon, they think, oh yeah, everyone I've had from there is super amazing. And when I go there, everyone is nice. And there's a, a, a sketch in this show Portlandia where there are a bunch of people at a stop sign and nobody will go for hours. Everyone's just playing cards like, no, you go, no, you go. Um, and I think that a lot of people would say that that is a, perhaps a fault of Oregon drivers that were too polite. But I do think that that kind of sums up the culture of Oregon, you know, that people, if anything, are, are kind to a fault. Whenever I talk to people about wines and specifically Oregon wines, because I'm always trying new ones. I think it's so fun to try wines from all over the U.S. and outside of the U.S. as well. Everyone always thinks of Pinot Noir. Why is that? And do, are there any other wine varietals that you're making that you feel would be, you know, like some of your top? Yeah, I think that's a great question. And, you know, so many things in history are kind of happy accidents. Um, and I think one of the great happy accidents of Oregon is that 
David Lett in 1965 had been in UC Davis and had a really strong sense that the climate here was incredibly well suited for Pinot Noir. And he came and, and planted some and around the same time Richard Summer was planting Pinot Noir in Southern Oregon. Um, and I think he just happened to pick an extraordinary place, uh, you know, not out of luck. He definitely uh, went out of his way to, to find just the right spot. And had he been at UC Davis and had he been incredibly, you know, passionate about some other varietals, I think he could have picked something else that, that would have done really well here. But I think Pinot Noir is so well suited that people were able to have a great deal of success here, even before everyone really had a strong sense of what they were doing winemaking wise. You know, when you have grapes that are really well suited, they'll, they'll, kind of express themselves as long as you stay out of the way um, and and don't do anything you know really terrible in terms of screwing it up but I do think that the exciting thing now that we have this very strong industry that has kind of been supported by the excellence of Pinot Noir is that we have a bunch of other varietals that are happening now that are really exciting for us here um, in the Grand Oregon Wine Company we are making Pinot Gris and, and Pinot Blanc and Chardonnay, all of which are kind of also in the classic French subset, the Pinot family. Um, and I think that, you know, those are, are kind of no brainers. Uh, we're also within our little wine family here, making Albarino from the Iberian Peninsula. I think that's a great, uh, great match for the Valley. I think as things uh, start to change climactically a little bit, you'll see more of the kind of big red, maybe Bordeaux varietals. Um, I think we're not quite to Cab Franc here in most sites, but probably soon. Uh, definitely in Southern Oregon, that's an option that we're working with uh, for the Ransom label. And Gamay Noir is a wonderful choice that we're seeing a lot more of. So it's exciting, I think, as the, as the industry matures and as this new generation of winemakers comes up and is looking to hitch their star to something that makes them a little bit distinctive, I think we're seeing a lot more diversity in terms of what's being planted. And um, it's, it's a lot of fun to, to drink more different Oregon wine and, and to, to sort of ponder our next move. And to get into your selection there a bit, so do you have any wines that are always sort of in the staple where every year you have a new vintage of this specific wine or is it all kind of just whatever the seasons bring you? We definitely try and highlight uh, what we feel like is the most excellent of our, um, of our lineup. And, you know, for me, I came in at a really kind of fun time to be a winemaker, it's kind of, it's probably my favorite part of the whole season, which is blending. And so it's an interesting thing to come into a winery where you haven't been the winemaker for harvest and the wines are basically finished and you're basically tasting through and trying to highlight the best of the vintage by blending. And, you know, I was given quite a bit of leeway in terms of, you know, what, what do you think is good? And let's, you know, let's make the best wines that we can. And so really, the options are doing different single vineyard wines, you know, amongst the Pinot Noirs, there are a bunch of different wines that could be made. And so it really does come down to, for us, tasting through, selecting either clonal selections that we think are really extraordinary, site selections that we think are really extraordinary, 
Um, you know, if this year there were two different vineyards uh, that were both volcanic sites, one in the Eola Amity and one in the Dundee Hills. And so we made a volcanic cuvee for 2019 that's just about to be bottled. And that's a wine that I, I'm really fond of. And I know it's a, something that's been done here in the past in the 2017 vintage. Um, but really, I am a firm believer that my job as a winemaker is to be, you know, the, the person wearing the bush and holding the spotlight on the the star of the show which should be the grapes and the site and the terroir and my my hope is that i can really show off the the vineyard and get out of the way as much as possible and sometimes that you know that does mean you know making choices about blending or whichever that show it in the best light but but it's definitely our hope that we make the choices of the wines that will be the most expressive of place, even if that means one year we make a single vineyard from one vineyard and the next year something else is stronger and so we switch it up. That's got to be the best way to do it. Now to get into the blending a bit, when you are trying to, you know, taste through these wines, what sort of size batches are you working with here? Or do you just taste a bunch of the wines and then see, okay, you know, let's uh, go all in on this one blend and see how it comes out or do you have sort of a bunch of different mini batches that you can make to really pick the best one? So I think a lot of people would say that uh, this is not the most efficient way to do it but I really am a believer that individual barrels are you know they have an incredible amount of specificity considering that you might have a fermenter that held between four and eight barrels at the beginning but they evolve and change so much in barrel so i go through and taste every barrel individually and try and get a sense of who i think the strong candidates are and how many of them there are you know so i might say oh well you know there were eight barrels from this lot four of them i think are really really beautiful so if we're looking to make a 150 case lot, do I want to pull in two other barrels from another lot from the same vineyard? Um, but it definitely looks like um, the writings of, of someone who, you know, hasn't, hasn't slept in weeks. It's lots and lots of pages of numbers and, you know, this one should go in for sure. These ones maybe. And then I will usually, after chasing through barrels, pull small samples of just a few hundred milliliters and make what I call spot blends um, and leave them in a bottle on the bench for a week or two to harmonize. Because really even within the small samples, it's incredible how much change over a short period of time you have when tannins start to polymerize with tannins in other barrels, when the acid balance of the wine shifts slightly it can really blunt the aromatics or heighten the aromatics. And so you really want to give it a little bit of time to, to sit and, and find its level and then revisit it in a way that is unbiased. It's incredible, even if you're trying to, you know, do the best by every barrel that's there, every blend that's there, how much your own feelings about things end up playing in. So it's really important to me I'll label them, you know, blend A, blend B, blend C, and then I'll put a blank piece of tape over it, shuffle them around, and then relabel them so I don't know what's what, because I already know which blend I think should be the best, but it's, I'm not necessarily right, you know. Blending is a great, uh, a great mystery that the things that you think should, A plus B should equal C, but sometimes it equals F, and so I think it's important to kind of pull your own ego out of the process as much as possible 
and really, you know, let the wine speak and not, uh, not force it to be what it's not. So then go back through and taste in a very quiet and thoughtful way and try and pick the best blend. And if none of them is right, do it all over again. You mentioned that you had that new wine that's coming out. Do you have any other limited editions or limited releases that will be coming out in 2020? Yeah, I think looking ahead, we will also be releasing uh, a wine that's very special to me because it'll be a great Oregon wine company single vineyard for my family vineyard, the Catrell Vineyard. Um, and that was an over-vintaged wine, so it'll actually be a 2018 that's getting bottled this summer. Um, the other wine will be a single vineyard from the Crawford Beck Vineyard, another really lovely, um, very carefully farmed vineyard in the Eola Amity Hills. And we have a Willamette Valley Pinot Noir that is a slightly larger bottling, so it ends up you know, reaching a few more hands. Um, it, it's usually about 600 cases, so you might find it a few more places around the country and not have to make it all the way out to Oregon to find it. Um, and a couple of Chardonnays that I'm really excited about too. We did one Chardonnay in 2019 from a few different vineyards in the Willamette Valley, and then one from our estate vineyard, uh, the Coles Valley Vineyard in, in the Umpqua. And I think they're a great pair. You know, it's kind of, they're kind of these um, pairs that sort of showcase the two um, poles of what Oregon Chardonnay can be. The Coles is a little bit richer, a little bit more citrus, a little more weight, and the Willamette Valley is a little more crisp and, you know, and dry and lean and linear. Um, they're, they're both really pretty, but they definitely, you know, relate to each other in winemaking style and show the differences between the vineyards really well. And we have a Pinot Noir from Coles as well. I think if there's one thing that we're trying to be really consistent about, it is showcasing the site at Coles because it's a really extensive site. And so every year there's kind of something different to show there. And it's a, you know, an important part of our program. And it's definitely one that I think we'll see the most regularly going forward. And to get into the vineyard a bit further, I saw some pictures online of what you have there for the vineyards and the tasting room and everything. Can you give us a little bit info about if someone was to come visit you, what they can experience on location? Absolutely. Yeah. So we are located just outside of Dundee and we have a, an estate vineyard that is currently, you know, we have some older vines and some younger vines that wrap around the property. Our taste room staff is, is really uh, knowledgeable and, and experienced and I love talking to them about the wines. And we tend to have uh, two different flights of, we have a, a wine flight and there's also a spirits flight for the distillery. So it's kind of fun. You can try the Great Oregon Wine Company wines um, or the Ransom Spirits. And sometimes the flight will actually be the Great Oregon Wine Company wines as well as the Ransom wines. So there's a lot of different things to try um, going forward as the tasting room expands and things open back up a little bit as we're you know, currently in the mo moment of, of COVID as the distillery gets up and running here, uh, we're hoping to do more with cocktails as well. So it's kind of a fun thing to experience you know, these, these, these cool wines as well as be able to, to try some of the spirits as well. Unique for the area, I'd say. Neat, and the wines that we have in front of us are the Rosé of Pinot Noir, the Pinot Gris and the Pinot Noir. Um, I, so the rosé, I have, I have a question that I think there's a lot of misconceptions around what makes a dry wine dry and your rosé is 
what I would think is dry and it's listed as dry on the website. So can you explain what that means and what the difference is between a dry rosé and a non-dry rosé? I think that's a great question and I definitely think that um, the, the word dry is something that as, as we all learn more and more about wine, it's a great one to think as critically about as possible. There typically are different thresholds of residual sugar that would be considered dry for different wines. So I would say in a wine like this rosé that has nice acidity that, you know, anything under about one, you know, 1% or a little less than 1% residual sugar could be considered dry. And this one, I actually don't have the number in my head at the moment, but it's definitely well below that. Um, I think the nice thing about dry rosé is that rosé, especially rosé like this, that maybe is a little bit richer, I would say the fruit's a little bit riper because it is from Southern Oregon, um, that if you have sweetness in addition to that, it can be really aromatically pretty, but I think it's just not quite as refreshing. And I think especially our rosé, I really love on a warm summer day when it's cool, you get these kind of crisp summery flavors like watermelon and strawberry. Um, and so I think a rosé that's dry to me is just a bit more refreshing. Um, but I think if people like off dry or, or sweet wines, um, sometimes wines that have a higher degree of acidity like a Riesling or a Chenin Blanc can carry that sweetness a little bit more effectively just for my palate. Yes, definitely a great summer wine. I can agree with that 100%. Um, the Pinot Gris, so I know Nick's never had a Pinot Gris, so this is gonna be new for him to try. I'm hoarding it right now, but I'll bring it to him. <laughs> we'll share. Um, but the Pinot Gris, so this is a, a white wine and it's a very like tasty wine. Um, what I had, as a question for this one is it kind of is not as like sweet of a white wine as some people might expect a white to be. And I would say it's definitely like a great white dinner wine. What is it that makes this wine so different? So I think Pinot Gris is a great varietal for people that are trying to get a sense of what Oregon has to offer besides Pinot Noir. There's a lot of it that is made. Um, I think this one personally is delicious. It was actually bottled before I came um, to join the company, so I can be I can be uh, totally objective about it. Um, but it's from a great little vineyard called La Chouette in the South Salem Hills. So it's a you know fairly cool site, lots of wind influence, and so you have this great uh, natural, vibrant acidity uh, that gives it a lot of nice fresh acid, and and that that makes it, I think, a really great food wine. And I think that Pinot Gris in general, especially when it is on the drier side and really acid driven, um, it pairs really well with things like seafood, um, nice summer salads, slaws and panzanellas and things like that. And the thing about Pinot Gris that I think is, is very special is that it kind of runs this really wide gambit of different fruit flavors. So to me, and for this one, I get some apple and some citrus and some stone fruit like peach or nectarine. Um, Pinot Gris is picked from a very, very cool place in a very, very cool year. Sometimes it goes more into the green apple gooseberry. Um, and if it's really, really ripe, it can get very unctuous and be more into a kind of an apricot flavor. Um, but I think this one has nice balance. It's kind of right down the middle of the flavor profiles that you might expect to see. And it's just a very clean, classic, elegant, uh, 
you know, white wine for, for dinner or just for sipping. Yes, for sure. And the, the Pinot Noir, saved for last, um, the Pinot Noir is such a great just sipping wine, a really great just having for a drink, whether you're pairing it with food or not. I think it's just such a nice light wine. Um, with Pinot Noir being, you know, so popular in your region, what is it that makes your Pinot Noir different? I think this Pinot Noir to me is really different than a lot of the other Pinot Noirs because it's from the Umpqua Valley. It has this really like dark, savory fruit character. It kind of reminds me of wild berries, um, like a like a huckleberry um, or a wild blueberry. And there's a lot of concentration of fruit. You get great ripeness. 2019 was actually a fairly cool year in Oregon, but because you have this really warm site in a cool year, you get extended hang time for that area and it gives you this really great concentration and kind of juicy fruit character without being totally, um, you know, lost on the palate. You know, it still has bright acidity. It's still really fresh. And I think because it's so fresh, it's, it's a great sipping wine or a great food wine. It kind of can go either way. Um, and I think even though I would say that some of the fruit characters in the Southern Oregon Pinot Noir are a little bit different. I think they're really approachable and there's a lot of great kind of sarsaparilla cola notes too that are really fetching. Um, and so I think this, this wine is very, it's very emblematic of its place, but it's also something that's really approachable if you're used to drinking other varietals of wine. You know, I think if you, if you drink a lot of Syrah or Malbec, there are some things in this wine that are kind of hallmarks that you might be used to, um, but it also is kind of a, a, a great intro to kind of classic Oregon Pinot Noir notes. And having worked with the two different wine brands, what do you have, I should say, I know it's hard to pick favorites, but do you have a favorite wine that you've made that's different or special to you? Oh man, so I have a canned answer because people ask me to pick my favorite wine all the time. <laughs> and I always say the same thing, which is like, you never ask people to pick their favorite child, you know? I mean, I think we, we put so much uh, into, into making all of these wines. And I think also wines are very finicky creatures. And often, even if I told you, you know, what wine I think is tasting amazing today, I, you know, might go back to another one tomorrow and say like, oh, wow, this one has come around and I think it's tasting even more amazing. Um, I mean, I... I'm obviously partial to, I think, the Eola Amity Hills and my family's vineyard are really special to me emotionally, and so I always really connect with those wines. I think one wine, though, that's a little different, that's, that's worth focusing on because it's something um, that's been really interesting to play with, and I feel like it's really helped me grow a lot as a winemaker uh, in the last few years is our Alvarino program um, because it's kind of a new varietal for the Willamette Valley. It's been really interesting to kind of play around with different fermentation techniques and really see what makes it tick. Um, and that's actually a wine that is in the Ransom portfolio rather than the GOWC portfolio. But, you know, they're kind of all within, within my purview as a winemaker. And that's a wine that's been a lot of fun. And I guess I would also say making vermouth is incredibly interesting and probably the thing that's the most different from everything else I do. And that's what I was doing today actually was, was putting a bunch of botanicals in sweet vermouth. So that's a very of the moment thing to think about as well. That's a great answer. So where can our listeners actually get their hands on your wines? 
I would say that probably the best way, especially since the world is so crazy right now and it's hard to, hard to find anything, would be to go to our website and we can sort of set things up for you there. And also you can reach out to people um, in the tasting room and if you're looking to find them closer to you, they'll be able to help, help narrow that down as well. And where can our listeners find you online and on social? So we are at, at the, the Great Oregon Wine Company, both online and on social. Awesome. GreatOregonWine.com. Awesome. We had a great time talking to you today. We had an awesome conversation. Uh, we're looking forward. I'm looking forward to trying these wines since Bianca's hoarding them all down in mass right now. Uh, yeah, what's but up, Bianca? I'll try to I'll get them. them all. I'll get them. <laughs> All right. You have a great Thanks, night. Guys. I had Cheers. a great time talking to you too. Cheers. Cheers. Be sure to follow us on social at Uncorked Corner and on the blog at uncorkedcorner.com for a taste of more food and beverage content. And if you enjoyed the show, don't forget to leave a comment, subscribe, rate, and review on whatever podcast platform you prefer. Thanks for listening. Thanks.